Hello, and welcome to On the Case. I'm Michael DePoe Wilson, your host, and we have another special episode of On the Case this month. We will be featuring a recent entry in the Frost series again. As a reminder, the Frost series is a case report series that is published every month in Anesthesiology News. In fact, it is always the last article in every issue of the magazine, and it is published on the website every month as well. For this episode, I will be discussing the case report titled The Rise, Fall, and Rise Again, Navigating the History of Chloroprocaine in Ambulatory Surgery with one of the authors, Dr. J. Eric Greensmith. Dr. Greensmith is an associate professor of anesthesia and critical care in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine at Penn State Health Milton S. Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Yes, the home of the Hershey Milk Chocolate Bar. I would also like to thank Dr. Sonia Vaida, who is our clinical editor for the Frost series in Anesthesiology News. Now, I do recommend that you read the case report as it does make an excellent companion for our interview. And you can find a link to the case report in today's interview in the description of this episode. If you want to read other case reports, I would encourage you to visit the website anesthesiologynews.com or check out the print issue that comes out every month. And if you have a case report of your own that you would like to submit for consideration, just go to anesthesiologynews.com slash case submission and follow the instructions there for how to submit your case report to us. We would love to see what you have. Okay, now without further ado, let's get into this episode's case with our guest, Dr. J. Eric Greensmith. Anesthesiologynews.com is the official website of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty, now in its 47th year of publication. Get access to extensive news coverage of major scientific meetings, feature articles, in-depth clinical reviews written by thought leaders, and all of the Anesthesiology News multimedia content, such as the 60-second abstracts video series. To get access to all of this content and the complete Anesthesiology News archives, visit anesthesiologynews.com. Welcome to the show, Dr. Greensmith. Thank you, Michael. Before we get into the case and, uh, and the uh, Frost series report that you wrote, could you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Well, I'm a practicing anesthesiologist and I teach at Penn State's Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I'm near the December of my career, but at different times I've been an intensivist. I've been a chronic pain physician, an acute pain physician. Uh, I'm boarded in critical care, and I also ran the Hyperbaric and Wound Care Center at the University of Iowa. So I've done pretty much every aspect of anesthesia. And you wrote a really excellent article for us that appeared in the February issue of Anesthesiology News about chloroprocaine. So, you know, there's a case that goes along with that, but a lot of the article is actually talking about this specific drug and you you gave a great history lesson about it as well. But before we get into some of the details of that, could you just share with the listeners, why did you decide to write this case report? Chloroprocaine is actually not a new drug. It was a drug from 60 years ago that was used successfully. And then there was a morphing of how it was produced. Additives were added to the drug, which were actually toxic. And unfortunately, the chloroprocaine was tarred with the same brush. And so uh, 
when I was a resident, we were taught never use this for spinal because of this toxicity. And in fact, later it was established that it was the additives that were the toxicity. And once the additives were removed, it's been a very successful drug for us. And it's the shortest acting local anesthetic. So in an era where efficiency counts, having a short acting local anesthetic is very helpful. You know, the article, you have a, a pretty nice overview of the of the history going all the way back. Um, and you did give us a little taste there, especially about uh, why there was the fall. So we had the rise, the fall, and, and now we're on the rise again. Could you just d- dig in a little bit more into that history, kind of going back to the beginning about why this did become such a, a popular drug initially before it fell out of favor? Well, it also reflects the changes in uh, the way things are studied. Uh, initially, it was approved with use in 214 patients, which is a small number by today's uh, standards. Look at how the COVID vaccine has been tested in tens of thousands. But uh, it was initially quite successfully used. And then later, the product had sodium metabisulfite added as an additive to prevent oxidation. Because chloroprocaine is an ester, an ester local anesthetics, whether it's tetracaine, chloroprocaine, procaine, even cocaine, because these esters are less stable than the amides, like lidocaine and bupivacaine, and these will all be drugs that will be familiar to your readers, the attempt was made to prevent oxidation by putting this bisulfate in there. And what was subsequently found was when large doses were that were intended to be administered epidurally, were inadvertently given subarachnoid, there were permanent neurologic deficits. And at first, the thought was it was the chloroprocaine that was toxic. But in fact, we later came to realize through bench research and then animal research that it was the uh, addition of sodium metabisulfite that was the problem and was damaging to the nerves. Recent formulations do not have this drug and would be safe for subarachnoid use, although there's been uh, economic disincentive to pursue that because it's it's a generic drug. So it's hard to expend the millions required for uh, reestablishing this use. You know, what, what was the reason for why the additive was put in and why it was taken out? You know, how, how were those decisions made? I think originally it was a question of oxidation. So drugs that can be oxidized, you can, many of our foods have uh, sulfites added. Wine has sulfites added. Uh, to prevent oxidation. So it was an attempt to improve the shelf life of these drugs. But in fact, how we do it today is reasonably short half life, sh- shelf life. And it's in a brown bottle that protects it from light as well. So drugs like adrenaline, noradrenaline, many of these catecholamines are light sensitive. And so they have sulfites added. And you mentioned that, um, you know, there's the economic disincentive about reestablishing the drug through large trials to sort of prove its um, its safety. So do you have an idea about what the approach should be about getting the word out there that things have changed and, and it's okay to use this again? Well, the, probably the most enterprising group was uh, out in uh, Seattle. There, the anesthesiologists all anesthetized each other with spinal uh, chloroprocaine. Every, every single one of them anesthetize every single one of them. And so they can report on personal experience. And that is a very dramatic way to uh, prove the safety of something when you, uh, you feel so confident you'd have it done on yourself. So I encourage people to read that uh, review that's anesthesia and analgesia. It's a special supplement. And half of these uh, articles are about chloroprocaine and the other half were done at hospital for special surgery where they looked at mepivacaine. 
So those are two drugs that were not routinely used for spinal. And thanks to those two groups, uh, we now know a great deal about the safety of both of them. That is very interesting. We'll definitely include links to those so people can check them out. Um, so let's get into the details of this case then. So what was happening when this case first presented? Uh, this this patient represents an amalgam of many patients, uh, and we need a, a procedure that is relatively brief. This is not a long-acting spinal. Anything beyond two hours is not appropriate for this. But often we have a patient who's got a difficult airway, or they've got issues in the past with nausea and vomiting with general anesthesia, or they've got a family history of malignant hyperthermia. So you'd like to go with a spinal, but the they're outpatients, and you'd like them to go home and have lunch in their own home or be ambulatory in the afternoon. And in the past, we might have used a drug like lidocaine 5%, but in fact, there was a very high incidence of transient neurologic deficits where people had uh, aches and pains and dysesthesias that pretty much nobody uses hyperbaric lidocaine anymore. So you're left with a long-acting drug like bupivacaine where you can't guarantee that patients can urinate or ambulate when it's time to leave. If you're running a surgery center and the lights go off at 5 p.m., you need all the patients out the door. So this patient represents that. So I am careful always to discuss with my surgeon what is the estimated duration of the surgery. And they're very appreciative when I can have these patients ambulating within an hour of leaving the operating room. We'll have our physical therapist see them and walk them immediately and these knee patients do not necessarily have to stay overnight after a total knee arthroplasty. And I believe that represents the future. You decided pretty far in advance that you were going to be using uh, chloroprocaine for these types of cases. You, you did kind of touch on this, but I mean, in this particular case, did you have any considerations for any kind of other anesthetic options? Uh, we could have used a reduced dose of bupivacaine and hope that it would wear off sooner. Again, urinary retention is a problem. This is a, a relatively young woman, particularly in older men, though, urinary retention is already a problem. And you add something like bupivacaine and you may need a Foley catheter to drain your urine, which has uh, got a downside. There are the only other alternative really is, is ropivacaine or mipivacaine, which are short, shorter than bupivacaine, but not nearly as short as chloroprocaine. Could you just tell us, you know, what the outcomes of the case were? Uh, these these patients routinely uh, recover within an hour of leaving the operating room. We often get them right to recovery and place a adductor canal block, which will give them postoperative analgesia. And within an hour after that, the physical therapist will walk with them with a four-point walker to make sure they're steady on their feet. And then unless there's other medical reasons not to release them, we will discharge them day of surgery. Yeah, and that, that basically co kind of covers the case. Uh, you know, as we said before, you, the case was really just like a, a nice snapshot of of why this is a good drug to start using again. Um, you know, kind of clearing up some of the the bad air there. And in general, looking at your practice, um, you know, were there? Do you kind of have any major lessons over uh, the time that you've been using uh, chloroprocaine? Uh, there are a couple points that really do need to be made if you want it to last longer. You can either give more of the same drug, or you can add fentanyl. Even 12.5 or 25 micrograms of fentanyl will add an extra half hour to the duration. You must never add epinephrine, as all of the uh, physicians who anesthetized each other out at the um, Seattle facility experienced flu-like symptoms 
when there was the addition of epinephrine. So we frequently add epinephrine to local anesthetics to slow their uptake and make them last longer. But this is one drug you don't want to do that. The other point to be made is the baricity. Baricity is how dense this is uh, compared to cerebrospinal fluid that we're injecting this into the spine. Think of salad dressing where you have the oil and the vinegar. And if you let it sit in your refrigerator, they're going to settle out, right? 2% and 3% chloroprocaine are hyperbaric, which is ideal if you want to do something like hemorrhoids, where you really only want the perirectal area to be anesthetized. If you inject a cc or two of 3% chloroprocaine and just leave them sitting for a moment, you get what's referred to as a saddle block. And that's just another word for a very low spinal, where you only block the areas that would touch a saddle. So think of John Wayne for just a moment. Well, I don't know, Pilgrim. And anything that touches leather is what's going to get numb. So your bottom, your private parts, the inner thigh, and that's perfect for um, work on hemorrhoids. So it, the hyperbaricity can be useful. That is a very aptly named uh, term. <laughs> for that kind of block. So another question I, I had for you, and you touch on this a little bit uh, also in the article, is just talking about the mention of the competitors. And so, you know, chloroproquine was um, was kind of compared in one of the studies you mentioned to a, a few, I mean, the term competitors is is sort of, you know, not in like a business sense, but just in general, like alternatives, alternatives, exactly, is other options that you might have. So, um, you know, you, you've touched on that a little bit. Could you just sort of expand on that a little bit about the the differences? You know, if somebody is is considering um, starting to employ this drug in, in their practice, they might be thinking about, uh, you know, lidocaine or bupivacaine. Could you just talk about how maybe you w- would take someone through that thought process about how to make that decision? Well, one of the unfortunate prices of success of chloroprocaine is now we are running into shortages. So sometimes I'm the guy who's hearing from my pharmacist at the window, we're out. And so then you have, if you still want a short spinal, you have to consider a mepivacaine. And I would, again, encourage people to look at that uh, uh, review where they use mepivacaine, which is an, an amide local anesthetic similar to bupivacaine but shorter acting. And so I would suggest they uh, look for a specific dosing, look at that uh, as an alternative in case your, your pharmacy cannot get chloroprocaine. And finally, whenever you look at chloroprocaine, and I make everybody read, two people need to read the bottle. That's kind of my unwritten rule. Anything from outside a spinal tray needs to be looked at with suspicion. So when, I, when I'm working with a resident, both the resident and I need to read that bottle. And it needs to say MPF, methylparaben-free. There are forms of local anesthetics with methylparabens in there, and these are neurotoxic. So you must read that it's methylparaben-free to avoid the toxicity. And our pharmacy has taken the approach, we just will not have anything with additives in our uh, chloroprocaine. So we get the pure chloroprocaine with no additives supplied. Okay. And is that, um, you know, you're able to make that decision on the local supply side for you. Is that, is that a common thing that you would actually expect to see one of these vials that has, that has that additive in it? 
That's a great point. I mean, maybe we should be taking this up at the level of ASR, American Society of Regional Anesthesia, or, or even a larger body like ASA, American Society of Anesthesiologists, because we really don't want to have that in the system. Uh, I mean, we always check, but uh, you don't want the Swiss cheese model of mistakes where if somebody doesn't check and it is in the system, it could get through to a patient. So uh, I'm quite insistent about, but I hope other people would make that leap as well. And I did mention these toxicities in the article. Right. You do. And I mean, it's a good point to just illustrate that one more time that you didn't just, you know, you can't just assume that it's going to be exactly what you think it is when you grab the, the bottle. Um, and I, you know, I guess the, the last thing, I mean, you've touched on your experience and in, in using, um, and using chloroprocaine, um, you know, is there any advice that you would give to any of our listeners who might be thinking that this is um, definitely a, you know, a path that they want to go down to learning more about this and starting to implement it in their practice as well? Uh, the main modern resource is that is that special supplement to anesthesia and analgesia. And I first went to hear the authors uh, speak at a symposium. And that made me realize that we need to reinvestigate the use of this drug. And uh, they were quite convincing. And to me, when you're willing to try it on your, yourself or have it be used on your own family, that's the final uh, common pathway for uh, believing in something. Yes, I think that is absolutely absolutely true. Um, and we'll definitely make sure that people have access to that resource uh, in our show notes so you can find the link to that. Um, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Greensmith, for taking the time uh, educating us about about this drug and about the history of this drug. Um, you know, I definitely encourage people to read your very uh, extensive, um, you know, overview of the history and, and the, the modern uh, uses of, of this drug in the article that you wrote. Um and, you know, is there anything else that, that you uh, would like to add before we let you go? Uh, I, I have encouraged the residents to uh, get the frost series, the bound frost series, as they prepare for their oral boards, because it is case after case, and it's a great way to prepare for your orals. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for, for mentioning that. Uh, you know, it's, prob it's probably time that we add a little bit more to that, too, I would say. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for your time today and, and for sharing all this, uh, this great insight. And thank you also for writing the article and getting all this information out there for all of us. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much to Dr. Greensmith for being our guest this month on On the Case. And thank you to all of you for joining us. I would like to remind you that if you were listening to Dr. Greensmith explain what went into writing this case report and you are thinking that you too might have a case to submit, please consider doing so. You can go to our website at anesthesiologynews.com slash case submission and follow the steps there. Now we also have a new episode of Ask the Experts coming out later this month and our guest for that episode is none other than Dr. Karen Seibert. Dr. Seibert is a clinical professor of anesthesiology and the director of communication in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine at UCLA Health. She is also well known for her writing on trends in anesthesiology, which has been published on KevinMD.com, the ASA Monitor, and the New York Times, as well as on her own blog, AppendPoint.com, and right here in Anesthesiology News. Now, if you enjoyed the show this month, please consider leaving us a rating and a review. It goes a long way in helping others to find the show. And as always, thank you so much for listening.
Anesthesiology News Presents On the Case was produced this month by me, Michael DePoe-Wilson. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Our music comes from Blue Dot Studios. Our editorial director is James Pruden. The rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Betty Zong, Christian Janicone, Lucia Scanlon, Kwangi Chung, Sophia Lee, and Sam Steinfeld. On the Case is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty, and the McMahon Publishing Group.